From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Torek IOLs. Uh, That's like the Easter Bunny, as far as I'm concerned. I've looked at thousands and thousands of cases from physicians all over the world, and I have never seen a data set where there's no surgically induced astigmatism. First this. In order to provide medical education free of commercial bias, as seen from here requires a financial interest disclosure before any podcast program. Dr. Hill reports consulting fees for Alcon, Carl Zeiss Meditech, and speaking fees from Alcon, Carl Zeiss Meditech, and Oculus. I like to think that my small incision clear cornea cataract wounds are astigmatically neutral. Of course, there are a lot of things I'd like to think, but that doesn't make them true. Perhaps the small astigmatic change induced is of little clinical consequence when we implant spherical IOLs. But how much influence will this iatrogenic astigmatism have in the delicate refractive planning necessary to toric IOL implantation? It turns out that, well, why don't I let Warren Hill explain? Warren, welcome to a scene from here. What are the options for addressing pre-existing astigmatism? Remember that a refractive astigmatism and corneal astigmatism may not necessarily be the same. The the natural lens is not necessarily spherical. There can be some component of astigmatism in the natural lens, and that mixes with the corneal astigmatism to give refractive astigmatism. It's not at all unusual to see a patient that has one diopter of refractive astigmatism on their manifest refraction and yet have perhaps two and a half diopters of corneal astigmatism. So basically, when we look at how we're going to correct astigmatism in the pseudophagic state, we look only at the cornea. And the way we do that, of course, is with keratometry. Um, There are a lot of um, different approaches to how people um, measure the, the, the corneal astigmatism. Uh, prior to implantation of the uh, toric intraocular lens. But the method that we found that that works best is really um, manual keratometry. It's helpful to keep in mind that uh, the autokeratometry feature of the IOL master, manual keratometry, and simulated keratometry all use completely different methods. Um, They may determine the axis uh, differently. They may determine power differently because they're measuring different zones. And so one question that comes up a lot is how, how do we measure the preoperative astigmatism and um, what's the most reliable way to do it? Uh, our office was part of the original FDA study in, ni- in 2002 for the Acrosoft Torque IOL. And for the FDA study, we used manual keratometry. And since that time, we've implanted a lot of toric IOLs. It's really one of our favorite lenses. And we've used auto case from the IOL master. We've used simulated case. We've used manual case. And we found that manual case probably have the very best correlation with the astigmatism that the patient needs to have corrected, the refractive astigmatism. And what that is is really the difference in power between the principal meridians. Let's say grandma has case of... 42 at 180 and 44 at 90. Um, so we have two diopters of astigmatism to correct. And manual keratometry is measuring roughly a 3 or a 3.2 millimeter zone. One of the problems with determining 
how much astigmatism needs to be corrected is a concept called angular error. And not only do we need to figure out the power between the principal meridians of the cornea, but we also need to determine the steepest axis. And um, we have to determine the steepest axis with some degree of precision, because for every one degree we're off on the correct axis of corneal astigmatism, that's a 3.3% reduction in the astigmatic error. And what that means is a 10-degree error will, will reduce the astigmatic um, correction by 33%. So if you do manual Ks and auto Ks and sim Ks and they're off by you know, 10 degrees, that 10 degrees can take away one-third of the effectiveness of the toric intraocular lens. And of course, we all want to have perfect outcomes. So in, in our practice, again, having, having done this since 2002 as part of the FDA study and having done a lot of toric IOLs, um, we've, we've come back to manual keratometry as the one methodology that allows us to set the axis and determine the, the power difference between meridians with the greatest amount of reproducibility. And the advantage of manual keratometry is you're not handing yourself over to a computer algorithm for determining the steep axis. Um, you can take your time and get it exactly right. In our particular practice, we use a Javal keratometer or a Javal ophthalmometer, more correctly said. And with the, with the Javal instrument, it allows us to set the axis with a lot of precision. If the patient has, has a dry ocular surface, a little bit of trouble uh, fixating, we can put in some artificial tears, remind them to look right at the fixation light, take our time, get the axis right, then turn 90 degrees and look um, at the other meridian and measure that. So the, the important points for the toric IOL is determining the steep axis because the act, that's going to be the number you're going to put in the toric IOL calculator and determining the difference between the principal meridians, which is the amount of astigmatism uh, you'll be correcting. And again, we like to do this manually. Now, if you don't have a Javal instrument, um, and they're easy to pick up on the used um, instrument market, um, you can use a BNL keratometer, but what we have found is most useful for physicians to get the axis correct is to set the steep axis with the horizontal drum, record the power, and then take that same drum and rotate it 90 degrees and find the power. And that way that gives you the the steep axis, and it also gives you the power difference between the two. And using a BNL keratometer, getting all those little floaty rings to all sort of line up is, is kind of like getting 10 cats to all work, walk in a row. It's very, very difficult. So we sort of run home to mama, so to speak, um, as far as accuracy goes, using a manual keratometry because we found it's the most precise. But of course, physicians want to automate and delegate, automate and delegate, you know, have their technicians do everything and have it done automated. But if, since the patient is paying um, a, a premium price for the toric IOL, um, a, really a little bit of extra care should be taken to do this correctly. And in our practice, either my partner or myself actually do the keratometry in addition to the technicians doing it. So the technicians will do the keratometry and then I will do it. And with the patient there, we will compare. And if there's a difference, then we'll go back and take another look because, because it matters a lot. And again, a small difference um, can, can result in a significant angular error.
Warren, can I get you to talk a little bit about measurement error and the role that it plays? Um, let, let's talk about the concept of angular error. And this, this isn't just some obtuse uh, mathematical concept. It's something that we have to live with every single day, those of us who are putting in the toric IOL. And by angular error, what I mean is an axis someplace different than where it's supposed to be. And let me explain this in a little bit more detail. As I mentioned before, for every one degree off you are on the placement of the um, toric IOL, that's a 3.3% um, diminution in the effect of the toric IOL. If you're off 10 degrees, which is not hard to do, you're going to be off by 33% in the effectiveness of the toric IOL. If you're off 30 degrees, it's the same as though you put in a spherical eye. Well, there's no effect at all. So what it comes down to is measurement, marking, and placement. And each one of these is an opportunity for an angular error. By angular error, I, again, I just mean that the axis that's, that's true and correct is different than the axis that you measure, you mark, or you place. And because... Um, Angular errors can only be additive. They, they can't cancel each other out. Every single opportunity for measurement, marking, or placement is an opportunity for an angular error. So this is why we take such tremendous um, care in making sure that the steep axis is determined correctly, that we calculate our own surgically induced astigmatism. And there's a tool for this on my website. It's um, Doctor D O C T O R, and then hyphen little dash uh, hill dot com. If you go to the downloads area, there's an Excel spreadsheet that you can use to calculate your own surgically induced astigmatism by putting in about 20 cases. So let's start with uh, with measurement. As I mentioned before, we want to be very very precise in determining the steep axis. And again, I, I don't like to hand myself over to some internal algorithm for a keratometer or an autokeratometer. I like to do the measurement myself using manual keratometry. And all of the investigators in the original FDA study did just that. And the results were, were really quite spectacular. As far as marking goes, you need to make sure that when you mark uh, the cornea, you set up a set of reference marks. And typically, that's at 3 and 9 o'clock with the patient sitting up and looking at a fixation target off in the distance. Uh, we use a Blakewell bubble marker. That's a spirit level with um, two little wings on it with some, um, some dye uh, put on the little wings. We have the patient look at a distance, and then we mark the cornea at 3 and 9 o'clock. And what that does is prevent the possibility of cyclorotation. If you mark the cornea with the patient laying down, there's typically a small or large amount of excyclotorsion, and that can be um, another cause for error in, in the axis uh, for marking. In the operating room, we use a, a gimbal Mendez uh, marker, and we line it up with the 3 and 9 o'clock position. That would be the 180-degree meridian on the marker. And then we mark the axis that was calculated by the Acrosoft Toric calculator for implantation, and then we mark our axis of the corneal incision, the clear corneal incision. With the combination of having the patient sit up, looking at a fixation target, marking 3 and 9 o'clock position correctly, then marking the calculated axis of implantation, 
and marking the axis of the incision, um, our results have been very, very good. But each one, each one of these is an opportunity for an error. And if any one of them is wrong, you're, you're going to get an undercorrection. And that's what most people have found with this particular lens. They don't get overcorrections, they get undercorrections because each um, part, again, marking, or rather um, measurement marking and placement is an opportunity for an angular error. And they're all additive and they all will lead to an undercorrection or a diminution in the effect of the torque intraocular lens. Warren, can I get you to talk about surgically induced astigmatism? For probably about eight months on our website, we had a spreadsheet that could be downloaded um, by anybody anywhere in the world. They would fill in the spreadsheet and send it back to me. And by hand, I would calculate the amount of surgically induced astigmatism. And, and one thing struck me very, very soon and, and early in this whole process, and that was that the amount of surgically induced astigmatism sort of plateaus, it flattens out at about, um, about 0.48 diopters. And originally it was thought the smaller the incision, the less the amount of surgically induced astigmatism. In other words, a three diopter incision, I mean, rather a three millimeter incision, would have a lot less astigmatism than a 2.5, and that's generally true. But the, the difference between 2.4 and 2.2 is pretty negligible, and even as far as, down as far as 2.0, and we routinely do 2.0 incisions in our own practice, the amount of surgically induced astigmatism is about the same. Uh, in our practice, it's about 0.48 diopters, and that's probably about the lowest that I've seen of any of the data that I've looked at um, a while ago, I looked at a very large series from India with a 2.2 millimeter incision back when this was relatively new, and the amount of surgically induced astigmatism was greater than half a diopter. I've looked at some data sets um, using a 2.5 or 2.6 millimeter incision, and the amount of surgically induced astigmatism is about 0.5 diopters. And I think this has to do with the stretching of the wound. Um, you can make an incision small, you can use microcoaxial phaco, but when it comes time to put the eye well through the incision, there's probably some stretching of the walls, and that's why we're seeing this plateau at about um, 0.48 diopters. I've seen a couple data sets where it's a little bit lower, but typically it's 0.48 or higher, regardless of the incision size for lenses that are commonly available in North America. So how, how does this impact on the whole idea of toric implantation? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a surg surgically uh, astigmatic neutral incision. Uh, that's like the Easter Bunny as far as I'm concerned. I've looked at thousands and thousands of cases from physicians all over the world, and I have never seen a data set where there's no surgically induced astigmatism. So beginning today, we can forget about that. Again, it's like the Easter Bunny. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. And where surgeons kind of get, a, get mistaken is that they, they think, well, you know, I started out with, um, you know, 44 by 45, and I ended up with uh, 44, I mean, 43.75 by 44. Um, Seven five or something, where we just it looked like there was a, a quarter diopter change. But what they fail to take into account is that this is astigmatism is really a vector quantity, and by vector quantity we mean it has both magnitude and direction. So even if the astigmatism that you measure postoperatively is only different by a quarter of a diopter, what you will notice is the axis has shifted 
away from the incision. And when we do vector analysis to determine the amount of surgically induced astigmatism, both the magnitude of astigmatic change and the shift in axis determines the, the amount of surgically induced astigmatism. So that's where surgeons are sort of confused. When we do the calculation to determine the new axis and the new power of the toric intraocular lens, we include the amount of surgically induced astigmatism. And if surgeons haven't yet calculated this value for themselves, start out with 0 0.50 as a good ballpark figure. That's a number that kind of comes up over and over and over again for the typical single plane incision done temporally. An incision done superiorly will probably induce a little bit more astigmatism just because of the way the cornea is set up. When you make that incision, say at 180 degrees temporally, what you're going to do is you're going to flatten the cornea in that meridian and steepen the cornea 90 degrees from that. It may be by a small amount, but what happens is that the steep axis gets rotated away from your incision, and that's part of the whole process of surgically induced astigmatism. So when you use the surgically induced astigmatism um, calculator, you would figure out your own value for that. And when you plug that in to the Acrosoft calculator that's made by Alcon, what you'll find is you're going to get a new axis and a new calculated amount of astigmatism to be corrected. So surgically induced astigmatism plays a very, very important role in determining both the new axis of implantation and the amount of astigmatism to be corrected. And going back to the idea of angular error, if you think you have no surgically induced astigmatism and you implant at 180 and the patient's axis is something different, failing to take into account the amount of surgically induced astigmatism is another source for angular error and another source for undercorrection. And undercorrection is typically the rule. Now, one, if there's any criticism of the Alcon Acrosoft uh, calculator, um, it's that the calculator assumes that all phases of the entire process of, of toric implantation, which is measurement, marking, placement, and also calculating the new axis, are perfect. And we know in, in life there isn't anything that we do that's absolutely perfect. And each one of these portions of the exercise is probably going to have some range of error. Um, and it's probably going to be normally distributed if it's done the same way every time. So if you um, measure the cornea, um, you're going to have a number of cases where you're going to do it perfectly. And there are going to be some cases where it's going to be off a little bit from what the true value is. That goes for marking. That goes for placement as well. And each one of these, again, results in an angular error, which results in an undercorrection. So to, just to sum up, to take into account, to, to fail to take into account the effect of surgically induced astigmatism is to induce an angular error and to result in an undercorrection. Warren, what role does topography play in surgically induced astigmatism? Well, topography actually has a more fundamental role for the toric eye well patient, and that is to determine is the astigmatism that you're correcting regular. That's the main function of topography. Remember, we want to measure both the axis and the 
and the power difference between principal meridians using manual keratometry. But when we look at the gestalt of the cornea, when we look at the whole cornea, we want to look to see that the astigmatism we're correcting is regular, which means you have basically the same amount of astigmatism on either side of the visual axis. If you have a steep area above the visual axis and nothing below, that's irregular astigmatism. If you have a steep axis above the visual axis and another steep axis 90 degrees, that's irregular astigmatism. If you have one localized steep area like in keratoconus or a big broad area like in pellucid mar marginal degeneration, that's irregular astigmatism. Um, also, eyes that have had prior radial keratotomy. I mean, that's almost the definition of irregular astigmatism. And some eyes that have had LASIK where they have flat islands or funny little unusual areas, this is also irregular astigmatism. And the, the, the toric IOL is not made to correct irregular astigmatism. One of the big problems with irregular astigmatism in the toric IOL is the toric IOL creates lenticular astigmatism, or more correctly said, pseudophagic um, astigmatism. And trying to correct that can be very, very complicated, especially if you, if you end up wanting to do it with a contact lens, like in a patient with pellucid marginal degeneration or keratoconus or some unusual corneal problem. And now you've got a big problem because you have irregular astigmatism in the cornea, you have pseudophagic lenticular astigmatism, and your contact lens fitter is going to just pull their hair out to try and figure out what type of toric eye well is going to be used uh, to correct that because you have to correct the corneal astigmatism on one surface of the eye of the contact lens and then the lenticular astigmatism that you've produced with the toric IOL on the other part of the contact lens and it gets to be very, very complicated. Warren, can I get you to describe this study? Well, this is just, you know, this is just a theater, a theoretical uh, study. This isn't sort of on the hoof as we say. But, but basically, the study that we published in the that I published in the Journal of um, Cataract Refractive um, Surgery was was to evaluate the expected effects of including surgically induced astigmatism in surgical planning for the Acrosoft lens. And basically, what it shows is when you fail to take into account surgically induced astigmatism, you're going to get either an undercorrection or you're going to get a result that's different than what you predict. Taking into account surgically induced astigmatism is a very, very important part of the whole picture. One thing we have to keep in mind from the patient's perspective is they're paying extra money for this service, um, not only for the cost of the IOL, but also for the extra time and care that the physicians take. And being off by half or three quarters of a diopter is probably not going to be acceptable when somebody's paid a fair amount of extra money for this procedure. Warren, your study would suggest that it's more important to be able to predict the surgically induced astigmatism than to necessarily mitigate it. In a sense, it's better to have a consistent error than one that is occasionally lower um, but is less consistent. Right. Well, calculating surgically induced astigmatism is something that each physician has to do on their own. And again, if you go to my website and download the tool for that, you can, you can do that on your own. There's going to be variation. Um, and one of the nice things about this particular tool is it allows you to calculate your surgically induced astigmatism for a temporal incision, superior temporal, superior, nasal, wherever you want to be. It treats each part of the cornea separately because the amount of surgically induced astigmatism is going to be different for the same incision type and size 
vertically as well as horizontally. Um, so the, each individual physician needs to calculate their value. And again, there's going to there's going to be a range. The incision is going to be slightly different in different eyes. Eyes are going to have different diameters, different corneal thicknesses. And what we do is for each of the areas, uh, say temporal, superior temporal, and superior, we just take the arithmetic mean of the vector calculated surgically induced astigmatism and give the surgeon a specific number to work with. And then that's the number that's placed in the Acrosoft toric calculator. Warren, one of the points that you make, too, is that failure to account for surgically induced astigmatism results in poor postoperative manifest refraction, not so much because of the role that the surgically induced astigmatism plays, but in the fact that lens calculation, excluding that factor, results in the surgeon choosing an IOL with the incorrect astigmatic power. Right. Well, we're back to angular error again. And and when when you fail to take into account these surgically induced astigmatism, what happens is you're going to be putting the lens uh, into the eye in the wrong axis. And just to review, when you, if you make an incision at 180 degrees, um, you're going to flatten in that meridian, and you're also going to rotate the steep axis, if it's not at 180 degrees, away from the incision. And that creates an angular error, and that goes back to implanting the lens at either the wrong axis or even calculating the wrong power. And what the surgically induced astigmatism calculator from Alcon does is it calculates the new axis of implantation, but it also calculates the new magnitude of astigmatism to be corrected. And oftentimes, um, taking into account the amount of surgically induced astigmatism will bump the lens to a different power, either up or down, depending on where the... um, the incision is placed. One fun thing we I like to do is I like to play around with the calculator and figure out uh, if I were to place the incision in this axis, which of the toric eye wells would the calculator um, recommend? And often just 20 or 30 degrees difference in the incision will take you from, say, a, a T3 to a T4 or from a T4 to a T5 depending on how much astigmatism you're correcting and how much surgically induced astigmatism the surgeon has. Another important concept is the amount of surgically induced astigmatism not only is determined by the location, is it superior or is it inferior, but it's, it's also related to incision size. You know, like would it be 2.5, 2.6, 2.2? The architecture, is it a three-plane, a two-plane, or a single-plane in incision? And um, sometimes even whether the surgeon's right-handed or left-handed or right eye and left eye. We set up the surgically induced astigmatism calculator to calculate for both the right eye and the left eye independently just in case there's some differences in that way. Warren, is there anything else you'd like to add? Let me just go over a couple more points. I, I get a, I get a lot of emails every day about this particular lens and ways to approach it. It's a wonderful lens because patients get fantastic unaided corrected vision, and also the surgeon uh, is is allowed to charge a little bit more, and his practice benefits in that regard. But surgeons really need to take their time. Think about this. Uh, Mrs. Jones comes in and she has glaucoma and it's a four-month or a six-month visit. You're going to spend 15 minutes with her explaining her glaucoma, going over the visual fields, talking about perhaps 
the need to change drops, and for that maybe you're reimbursed $30 or $40. For the Torque IOL, in our practice we, we charge considerably more than that, around $700. We can spend at least that much time with the patient, and, and that involves manually doing the keratometry, double-checking things with our staff, not automating and delegating, but rather doing things with our staff or even doing things ourselves, taking the time to make sure that every part of the process is exactly correct. And this is something that's really the surgeon needs to get involved in. The surgeon just can't delegate this to somebody else. So if there's any take-home message, it should be that great care should be taken in these three parts, you know, measurement, marking, and placement, and also, of course, running the calculator correctly so that you get the very best results. And anytime you, you falter, anytime you make a mistake, you measure the axis incorrectly, you um, mark the cornea incorrectly, you place the lens incorrectly, or you calculate an axis for the incision that turns out to be different the incision, than the incision you make, you get an undercorrection and the patient ends up with more astigmatism than what they, they had hoped for. What they're looking to you for is the best unaided distance visual correction. So physicians really need to get involved in this and um, learn how to do every part of, of the measurement process um, themselves. And, and, and again, in our practice, the physician and the staff both do the measurements and both confirm independently that they're correct. And, and that's really the best path to success for using this lens is, is having the physician get involved and become intimately familiar with every single part of this initial part, which is measurement. Warren Hill, thank you so much. Happy to help. Okay, bye-bye. Warren Hill hails from East Valley Ophthalmology in Mesa, Arizona. His paper, Expected Effects of Surgically Induced Astigmatism on Acrosoft Toric Intraocular Lens Results, appears in the March 2008 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Hill or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype J. Young, MD. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.